0: SECTION 22 OF THE Life OF SAMUEL JOHNSON, Volume 1, by James Boswell. This librivolve's recordings in the public domain. Irene as a Poem, Anna Domini, 1749, Johnson, no tragedy writer, I.T. 14. Irene, considered as a poem, is entitled to the praise of superior excellence, footnote, See post 1780 in Mr. Langton's collection for Johnson's Estimate of Irene in Later Life. End of footnote. Analysed into parts, it will furnish a rich store of noble sentiments, fine imagery, and beautiful language. But it is deficient in pathos, in that delicate power of touching the human feelings, which is the principal end of the drama. Footnote. Aaron Hill, volume two, page three five five, in a letter to Mr Mallet, gives the following account of Irene after having seen it I was at the anomalous Mr Johnson's benefit, and found the play his proper representative strong sense ungraced by sweetness or decorum Boswell and Footnote. Indeed, Garrick has complained to me that Johnson not only had not the faculty of producing the impressions of tragedy, but that he had not the sensibility to perceive them. His great friend Mr. Wormsley's prediction that he would turn out a fine tragedy writer was therefore ill-founded. Johnson was wise enough to be convinced that he had not the talents necessary to write successfully for the stage and never made another attempt in that species of composition. Footnote. Murphy, Life, page 53, says that some years afterwards, when he knew Johnson to be in distress, he asked Garrick why he did not produce another tragedy for his Vichfield friend. Garrick's answer was remarkable. When Johnson writes tragedy, declamation roars, and passion sleeps. When Shakespeare wrote, he dipped his pen in his own heart. Johnson was perhaps aware of the causes of his failure as a tragedy writer. In his criticism of Addison's Cato, he says, Of Cato it has been not unjustly determined that it is rather a poem in dialogue than a drama." rather a succession of just sentiments in elegant language than a representation of natural affections or any state probable or possible in human life the events are expected without solicitude and are remembered without joy or sorrow its success has introduced or confirmed among us the use of dialogue too declamatory of unaffecting elegance and chill philosophy works volume seven page four five six johnson thought cato the best model of tragedy we had yet he used to say of all things the most ridiculous would be to see a girl cry at a representation of it johnson's work seventeen eighty seven volume eleven page two o seven Cato, if neglected, has added at least eight habitual quotations to the language. See Thackeray's English Humorists, page ninety eight. Irene has perhaps not added a single one. It has, nevertheless, some quotable lines, such as, Crowds that hide a monarch from himself, Act one, scene four. To cant of reason to a lover, Act three, scene one. When in as love was breaking off from wonder and tender accents quivered on my lips, ibid. And fate lies crowded in a narrow space, act three, scene six. Reflect that life and death, affecting sounds, are only buried modes of endless being, act two, scene eight. Directs the planets with a careless nod, ibid far as futurity's untravelled waste, Act 4 Scene 1. And wake from ignorance the western world, Act 4 Scene 2. Through hissing ages, a proverbial coward, the tale of women, and the scorn of fools, Act 4 Scene 3. No records, but the records of the sky, Ibid. Thou art sunk beneath reproach, Act 5, Scene 2, O hide me from myself, Act 5, Scene 3. DEFERENCE FOR THE GENERAL OPINION, ANNO DOMINI, 1749. When asked how he felt upon the ill success of his tragedy, he replied, like the monument. No. Johnson wrote of Milton, I cannot but conceive him calm and confident, little disappointed, not at all dejected, relying on his own merit with steady consciousness, and waiting without impatience the vicissitudes of opinion and the impartiality of a future generation. Johnson's works volume seven page one hundred eight and a footnote, meaning that he continued firm and unmoved as that column and let it be remembered as an admonition to the genus eritabile, footnote Genus Iritabale Vatum, the fretful tribe of rival poets Francis Horace Book two Epistle two line one oh two end of footnote of dramatic writers that this great man, instead of peevishly complaining of the bad taste of the town, submitted to its decision without a murmur. He had, indeed, upon all occasions a great deference for the general opinion. Footnote. This deference he enforces in many passages in his writings, as, for instance, Dryden might have observed that what is good only because it pleases cannot be pronounced good till it has been found to please. Johnson's works, volume seven, page two five two. The authority of Addison is great, yet the voice of the people, when to please the people is the purpose, deserves regard. Ibid, page three seven six. About things on which the public thinks long, it commonly attains to think right. Ibid, page four five six. These apologies are always useless. De gustibus non est disputandum. Men may be convinced, but they cannot be pleased against their will. Ibid volume eight, page twenty six. Of things that terminate in human life, the world is the proper judge. To despise its sentence, if it were possible, is not just. And if it were just, it is not possible. Ibid, volume 8, page 316. Lord Chesterfield, in writing to his son about his first appearance in the world, said, You will be tried and judged there, not as a boy, but as a man. And from that moment, there is no appeal for character. Lord Chesterfield's Letters, volume 3, page 324. Addison, in The Guardian, number 98, had said that, Men of the best sense are always diffident of their private judgment till it receives a sanction from the public. Provoco at populum, I appeal to the people, was the usual saying of a very excellent dramatic poet when he had any disputes with particular persons about the justness and regularity of his productions. See post, March the twenty-third, seventeen eighty-three, and a footnote. A man said he who writes a book thinks himself wiser or wittier than the rest of mankind he supposes that he can instruct or amuse them and the public to whom he appeals must after all be the judges of his pretensions johnson in the green room i type 41 on occasion of his play being brought upon the stage johnson had a fancy that as a dramatic author, his dress should be more gay than what he ordinarily wore. He therefore appeared behind the scenes, and even in one of the side-boxes, in a scarlet waistcoat, with rich gold lace and a gold-laced hat. were I, he said, to wear a laced or embroidered waistcoat, it should be very rich. I had once a very rich laced waistcoat. Which I wore the first night of my tragedy. Boswell's Hebrides, October twenty seventh, seventeen seventy three. a footnote, he humorously observed to Mr. Langton that when in that dress he could not treat people with the same ease as when in his usual plain clothes. Footnote: Topham Beauclair used to give a pleasant description of this green room finery as related by the author himself. But, said Johnson, with great gravity, I soon laid aside my gold-laced hat, lest it should make me proud. Murphy's Johnson, page 52. In the idler, number 62, we have an account of a man who had longed to issue forth in all the splendour of embroidery. When his fine clothes were brought, I felt myself obstructed. He wrote, in the common intercourse of civility, by an uneasy consciousness of my new appearance. As I thought myself more observed, I was more anxious about my mien and behaviour, and the mien which is formed by care is commonly ridiculous. End of good stress indeed we must allow has more effect even upon strong minds than one should suppose without having had the experience of it his necessary attendance while his play was in rehearsal and during its performance brought him acquainted with many of the performers of both sexes which produced a more favourable opinion of their profession than he had harshly expressed in his life of savage with some of them he kept up an acquaintance as long as he and they lived and was ever ready to show them acts of kindness. He for a considerable time used to frequent the green-room, and seemed to take delight in dissipating his gloom by mixing in the sprightly chit-chat of the motley circle then to be found there. Mr. David Hume related to me from Mr. Garrick, that Johnson at last denied himself this amusement from considerations of rigid virtue, saying, I'll come no more behind your scenes, David, for the silk stockings and white bosoms of your actresses excite my amorous propensities. The Rambler, anno domini seventeen fifty, seventeen fifty, I, part forty one. In seventeen fifty, he came forth in the character for which he was eminently qualified, a majestic teacher of moral and religious wisdom the vehicle which he chose was that of a periodical paper which he knew had been upon former occasions employed with great success the tatler spectator and guardian were the last of the kind published in england which had stood the test of a long trial Footnote. the tatler came to an end on january the second seventeen ten eleven the first series of the spectator on december the sixth seventeen twelve and the second series of the spectator on december twentieth seventeen fourteen and such an interval had now elapsed since their publication as made him justly think that to many of his readers this form of instruction would in some degree have the advantage of novelty a few days before the first of his essays came out there started another competitor for fame in the same form under the title of the Tatler revived. Footnote. Two new designs have appeared about the middle of this month, March seventeen fifty. One entitled The Tatler revived, or the Christian philosopher and politician, half a sheet, price twopence, stamped. The other, The Rambler, three half sheets, unstamped, price twopence. Gentlemen's Magazine, Volume Twenty Two, Page One Two Six, and a footnote. Which I believe was born but to die. Footnote on man, two, page ten, and a footnote. Johnson was, I think, not very happy in the choice of his title, The Rambler, which certainly is not suited to a series of grave and moral discourses, which the Italians have literally but ludicrously translated by Il Vagabondo and which has been lately assumed as the denomination of a vehicle of licentious tales the rambler's magazine he gave Joshua reynolds the following account of its getting this name what must be done sir will be done when i was to begin publishing that paper i was at a loss how to name it i sat down at night upon my bedside and resolved that i would not go to sleep till I had fixed its title. The Rambler seemed the best that occurred, and I took it. I have heard Dr. Wharton mention that he was at Mr. Robert Dobbsby's with the late Mr. Moore and several of his friends, considering what should be the name of the periodical paper which Moore had undertaken. Garrick proposed the salad, which, by a curious coincidence, was afterwards applied to himself by Goldsmith. Garricks a salad, for in him we see oil, vinegar, sugar, and saltness agree. Retaliation, 911. At last, the company having separated without anything of which they approved having been offered, Totsley himself thought of the world. Boswell. End footnote with what devout and conscientious sentiments this paper was undertaken is evidenced by the following prayer which he composed and offered up on the occasion almighty god the giver of all good things without whose help all labour is ineffectual and without whose grace all wisdom is folly grant i beseech thee that in this undertaking note, in the original manuscript in this my undertaking and below the salvation both of myself and others, end the Holy Spirit may not be withheld from me, but that I may promote thy glory and the salvation of myself and others. Grant this, O Lord, for the sake of thy Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Footnote. Prayers and Meditations, page 9, Boswell. Revision of the Rambler, I type 41. The first paper of the Rambler was published on Tuesday, the twentieth of March, seventeen fifty, and its author was enabled to continue it without interruption every Tuesday and Friday till Saturday, the seventeenth of March, seventeen fifty two, on which day it closed. Footnote. In the original folio edition of the Rambler, the concluding paper is dated Saturday, March seventeenth, but Saturday was in fact march the fourteenth. This circumstance is worth notice for Mrs Johnson died on the seventeenth Malone and a footnote. There is a strong confirmation of the truth of a remark of his which I have had occasion to quote elsewhere that a man may write at any time, if he will set himself doggedly to it. Grey had a notion not very peculiar that he could not write but at certain times or at happy moments a fantastic foppery to which my kindness for a man of learning and virtue wishes him to have been superior Johnson's works volume eight page four eight two see post on april fifteenth seventeen fifty eight in a footnote for notwithstanding his constitutional indolence his depression of spirits and his labour in carrying on his dictionary, he answered the stated calls of the press twice a week from the stores of his mind during all that time, having received no assistance except four billets in number ten by Miss Mulso, now Mrs Chapone. Footnote. Her correspondence with Richardson and Mrs Carter was published in eighteen hundred and seven number thirty by mrs catherine talbot footnote the correspondence between her and mrs carter was published in eighteen hundred and eight and a footnote number ninety seven by mr samuel richardson whom he describes in an introductory note as an author who has enlarged the knowledge of human nature and taught the passions to move at the command of virtue and numbers 44 and 100, by Mrs. Elizabeth Carter. Johnson's rapid composition, Anno Domini, 1750. Posterity will be astonished when they are told, upon the authority of Johnson himself, that many of these discourses, which we should suppose have been laboured with all the slow attention of literary leisure, were written in haste as the moment pressed without even being read over by him before they were printed. Footnote. Dr. Birch says, The proprietor of the Rambler cave told me that copy was seldom sent to the press till late in the night before the day of publication. Croker's Boswell, page 121. Note. See post-April twelfth seventeen 1776, and beginning of 1781. Johnson carefully revised Ramblers for the collected edition, the editor of the Oxford edition of Johnson's Work states on two page ten that the alterations exceeded six thousand. The following passage from the last number affords a good instance of this revision. First edition I have never complied with temporary curiosity nor furnished my readers with abilities to discuss the topic of the day. I have seldom exemplified my assertions by living characters. From my papers, therefore, no man could hope either censures of his enemies, or praises of himself, and they only could be expected to peruse them, whose passions left them leisure for the contemplation of abstracted truth. And whom virtue could please by her native dignity without the assistance of modish ornaments. Gentleman's Magazine, volume twenty-two, page one one-seven, revised edition. I have never complied with temporary curiosity, nor enabled my readers to discuss the topic of the day. I have rarely exemplified my assertions by living characters. In my papers, no man could look. For censures of his enemies or praises of himself, and they only were expected to peruse them whose passions left them leisure for abstracted truth, and whom virtue could please by its naked dignity. Johnson's works, volume three, page four, six two, and a footnote. It can be accounted for only in this way, that by reading and meditation and a very close inspection of life. He had accumulated a great fund of miscellaneous knowledge, which, by a peculiar promptitude of mind, was ever ready at his call, and which he had constantly accustomed himself to clothe in the most apt and energetic expression. Sir Joshua Reynolds once asked him by what means he had attained this extraordinary accuracy and flow of language. He told him that he had early on laid it down as a fixed rule to do his best on every occasion and in every company, to impart whatever he knew in the most forcible language he could put it in, and that by constant practice, and never suffering any careless expressions to escape him, or attempting to deliver his thoughts without arranging them in the clearest manner, it became habitual to him. Such relics in square brackets milton's early manuscripts show how excellence is acquired what we hope ever to do with ease, we must learn first to do with diligence johnson's works volume 7 page 119 end of footnote end of section 22